You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Okay, welcome to this BJSM podcast. My name is Jill Cook and I'm one of the deputy editors of BJSM. I have the privilege today of talking to Professor Jeremy Lewis about his research and clinical understanding of rotator cuff tendinopathy in the shoulder. As many of you know, Jeremy is a leading researcher in this area and has published many papers on the clinical management of rotator cuff tendinopathy in both BJSM and in other journals. Welcome, Jeremy. Hi, good morning. Thank you. I've got a couple of warm-up questions for you about your work and yourself and the direction of physio in the UK. Um, I hear you've got a bit of a grab bag of jobs at the moment. What's the most exciting thing that you're doing both clinically and research at the moment? Okay, um, I work in a number of different places in, in London. I work as the research lead for the therapy department at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital where currently we uh, are running about 20 to 22 research studies supporting four PhD students. And most of those studies are musculoskeletal and most of those are around the shoulder. We're looking at treatments for um, subacromial pain syndrome, rotator cuff tendinopathy. Another job that I have is with another physiotherapy colleague, I run an ultrasound-guided shoulder injection clinic, which is embedded within a shoulder rehabilitation program and we perform ultrasound guided injections for rotative cuff tendinopathy, um, primarily for frozen shoulders, and the large volume hydrodilatation procedures for the stage three frozen shoulders. And that, that's quite a new, interesting direction for physiotherapists in the UK, um, moving into injections and also moving into ultrasound guided injections. And it's providing a, a, a wealth of area for uh, ongoing research. Fantastic. I noticed you used the word subacromial pain syndrome. Is that the new politically correct language for what we used to call subacromial impingement? I, I guess I guess coming to that term has been a, a bit of a journey over the last decade or more. Initially, well, sub, we know that subacromial impingement syndrome, uh, as defined by, by NEAR back in the 1970s, is the most commonly diagnosed condition in the shoulder and he believed that it was a condition caused by impingement or bony irritation by the inferior aspect of the anterior part of the acromion when the shoulder was in elevation. And that's been very much embraced by, I suppose, the orthopaedic community and the physical therapy communities around the world. And it's, it's a very commonly, it's very common, most commonly diagnosed condition. It's also the most commonly operated condition in the shoulder, so much, in fact, that in the last... 10 years or so in New York alone, the incidence of performing subacromial decompressions has increased by about 250%. But when I started my research journey, I started looking at some of the beliefs around the condition, and I've got to a point where I'm not convinced that there is a bony irritation as described by NIA. And some of the research that we're currently doing and some of the research that we've completed suggests that like a lot of other tendon problems it's very much an intrinsic failure of the actual cuff tendons and maybe less uh, the, the involvement of the acromion is, is, is less manifest as initially thought. Is the bursa uh, a critical part of both the pain syndrome and the sort of clinical presentation that we see that's not about the bones and we know that the tendons can be pain-free, pathological but pain-free. What's the role of the bursa in these conditions? 
Okay, the, the, it's a very good question. The, the, the evidence that we've got is not complete and finite, and we've got a long way to go to we, until we further fully understand what's going on. There's a lot of evidence that would suggest that the, the bursa is one of the um, main pain-producing structures in the shoulder. All the structures in the shoulder are innovated. There are somewhere between 6 to 12 bursae in the shoulder. We know that the subacromial bursa, which is the largest bursa in the shoulder, the largest bursa in the body, not only contains mechanoreceptors, but also can, contains free nerve endings. It has dual innervation from the suprascapular nerve as well as the lateral pectoral nerve. We know that in comparison to people without subacromial pain syndrome, we know there are a lot of chemicals that could stimulate the free nerve endings, such as the negatively charged neuropeptide substance P. There are um, many other cytokines that could stimulate these structures. So we know from laboratory and clinical and, and, uh, studies and uh, histological studies that there is the potential for the bursa to be a primary pain producer. We also know from surgical studies, if we look at the, the Henker study from 2009, where they randomized patients with subacromial pain syndrome to have a bursectomy versus have a subacromial decompression and a bursectomy, there was no significant difference between the groups, which suggested taking away the bursa reduced the experience of pain for patients and removing the acromion didn't add any additional, confer any additional benefit to the patients. So there is a body of evidence that suggests the bursa is a primary pain producer, but whether it is the cause of the problem or it's secondary to other problems going on in the shoulder, such as cuff failure, uh, we don't know the answer to that question yet. Okay. So it's a bit like many other areas of musculoskeletal medicine where we actually have to put away some of the things we were taught when we went through a long time ago for both you and I, but for some people not so, you know, a little bit more recently. Around the rotator cuff and, and around the impingement, what, what do you think is the thing that we have to let go of most that, that we hold so dearly to our, our sort of treatment algorithms? Okay, that, that's a f fantastic question and, and it would probably take a lot longer to answer than we have available. I, I, I guess the, we need to start at the beginning with that. The first, the first bit would be the assessment. There, is, there are issues relating to our belief that we can assess this particular condition using a series of clinical tests, orthopaedic tests, and support the clinical diagnosis with imaging findings. And if we look carefully, we scrutinize the research on, in these areas carefully, we're probably able to reproduce symptoms with our, with our orthopaedic tests, but we're maybe not necessarily able to identify where those symptoms are coming from. So the first problem that we have is our lack of ability clinically to be certain we can make a clinical diagnosis. If we then look at imaging, whether it's X-ray, ultrasound, MRI, to confirm our clinical diagnosis in order to offer patients the best management we can, putting together those two components, the clinical component and the imaging component, we probably also are let down a little bit by the fact that we can see structural failure in our, in our imaging uh, protocols, but we can't necessarily be certain that the symptoms are coming from structural failure, as there's a, there's a wealth of research 
across a number of decades that would suggest that structural failure does not always correlate with symptoms. So we're let down with an ability to be certain, be confident that we can make a diagnosis of this condition. And if that's the case, we're therefore potentially suggesting to patients you might need to might want to consider undergoing surgery for a condition we may not necessarily be able to with confidence be able to be, be certain that they're actually suffering from that condition that would be mm. the first thing the second issue would be issues relating to best ways to manage the condition and it's not a, a one-size-fits-all we for a long time since the 1940s have assumed that from a physical therapy perspective that patients have a postural presentation which may cause a change in scapular position which may lead to impingement on the soft tissues under the acromion. And, and those sorts of theories were proposed by the American Academy of Orthopaedic Surgeons back in the, the late 1940s. And if we look carefully again at the research that's been published since then, it's very difficult to find consistency in this postural change that's been described. And some of the research that, that I've been involved in and students have been involved in would suggest that posture doesn't follow the patterns that have been described in the literature. And therefore, observation of posture, such as forward head posture, increased thoracic kyphosis, changes in scapular position, may not always be a cause of this condition as the way, the way it's been described. And we may need different methods clinically of trying to identify, is posture causing the problem? And then I guess the final part to answer, answer your question would be the treatments that we offer patients. And it, again, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all that all patients need a very specific rotator cuff program. There's very, there are a large number of interventions that patients could possibly benefit from that we haven't identified exactly how best to offer those to patients and at what time to offer them, although we are trying to contribute to that knowledge with some of the studies we're currently doing. So I, I think my next question is going to be redundant or I think you've already answered it. That is that if someone has asymptomatic but imaging rotator cuff tendon disease, we should just ignore it and get on with looking at function and be happy that the person is pain-free. In, in, in my opinion, you, you, need to, you need not to exclude the, the, cl the clinical tests and the imaging findings, but the weight of the decision-making really does depend on the patient's clinical presentation, trying to identify what the patient needs fixed in terms of their functional needs and then trying to identify ways that we can apply different clinical treatments to that, including physical therapy, exercise, injections, and maybe even the need for surgery. But that the, the process needs to be more clinically focused and less focused on um, uh, clinical reasoning based on orthopaedic tests that probably can't identify what structures are causing the symptoms and imaging that can maybe not necessarily tell us where the symptoms are coming from. Mm. Do you think that the rotator cuff tendon is like other tendinopathies? Does it have anything in common with an Achilles tendinopathy or a, an elbow tendinopathy or is it a quite a different beast in some way? Uh, that's for me a, a difficult question to answer because I, I, I guess I don't have a lot of expertise in in lower limb tendons. The loading patterns in the lower limb are very different from the loading patterns in in the upper limb. But the 
presentations that you would find in the rotator cuff are not dissimilar to other tendons. And if we go back to the seminal paper that, that you and Craig published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, um, looking at the continuum of tendon pathology, you can apply that model to a large extent to the continuum of pathology that is seen in the rotator cuff. There are exceptions to that if you look at sort of the end-stage cuff failure, the, the massive cuff tears, the inoperable cuff tears, a different treatment paradigm would need to be applied to that, which, which, which we certainly contributed to. Um, one of my PhD students, Bobby Ainsworth, did a, did a wonderful project uh, published in um, Shoulder and Elbow back in 2009 looking at um, a specific exercise program for patient, patients with inoperable massive rotator cuff tears and, and clearly showed that there is a exercise a contribution to treating that through exercise, which, which may be different for um, massive large Achilles tendon tears mm. in terms, of, in terms mm. of management. But there are similarities, but there are also differences. We've got a, a tendon that is moving through a, the greatest range of movement, movement of any joint in the body. Um, we've got... Uh, a lot of other it's a very large tendon a lot of other differences that don't exist that don't exist elsewhere if if you could say or think forward a few years and say what would be the most exciting development in managing rotator cuff tendinopathy that would change what we do clinically could you think of what you would most like to see um, that's a really good question, and I, and I guess in the short term, what we need are m to be more confident as clinicians in terms of our clinical diagnosis to be certain that it is actually the rotator cuff that's involved in the patient's presentation, what components of the cuff and or biceps tendon. So we need more definitive ways of making the assessment. We also need to be able to stage which, part, which presentation the patient's in. So again, if we go back to your and Craig's model, which is a model I borrowed from in a paper I published a year after yours looking at the continuum of rotator cuff tendinopathy, trying to actually stage which presentations the patient's in and applying the right treatment for the right stage, we need a lot more research evidence around each of those stages in terms of what is best management, what, what, what should be considered as best management. For the, for the different stages of a reactive tendon, for a disrepair tendon, and also for a, a degenerative tendon. We also need more informed ways of preventing these, these problems. And then I guess there's exciting possibilities for the future in terms of potential injectables and potential stem cell research as well. But those are probably more long-term and less critically important than, than some of the more conservative exercise-based interventions, which are probably going to, for a long time, remain the mainstay of treatment. We just have to learn better ways to delivering them and the correct delivery at the right time for the presentation. That's a great overview of what you've achieved to date and where, we're, where we are in terms of managing this condition. Where to for you from here in terms of your research? Okay, um, we're currently completing, um, I've got a PhD student, Fiona Sanford, who's currently looking at exercise for patients with rotator cuff tendinopathy and she's randomising half the group 
to massive doses of omega-3 and antioxidants and the other group is being randomized to exercise and massive doses of placebo to see if, because we know exercise is generally pretty good for improving the health of tendons and what we're trying to learn, do, nutrition, do nutritional supplements improve the outcome in the, in the short and, and medium term as well? So that's one thing we're looking at. Uh, another PhD student, Karen McCreish, is currently looking at the effect of exercise in people with and without rotator cuff tendinopathy, looking on the immediate effect of activity on tendon swelling. Because if we come back to the original questions of uh, looking at subacromial impingement syndrome, the, the premise, the paradigm for many years has always been that it's the acromion and coracoacromial ligament pushing down on the tendon. But if we reverse that paradigm, if we, like in other tendons, such as the Achilles tendon, following an unaccustomed bout of activity where you can easily get a reactive tendon with swelling, if that's also happening in the rotator cuff, then that reverses the paradigm. And instead of the acromion pushing down, it can be a swollen tendon pushing up. And because of the shape of the coracoacromial ligament, which is more trapezoid in shape than rectangular, there's going to be potentially more tension at the acromial end of the ligament. And that may therefore cause bony spurs growing within the body of the ligament itself. And so we can re we're looking with, through Karen's research, we're trying to look at does, does it, is it actually the acromion pushing down or more a swollen tendon pushing up and the manifestations of a swollen tendon. So we're looking at a whole series of studies looking at acromial humeral head distances, the effect of exercise on, on the immediate and long, longer term effects on tendons. So that will be something exciting to, to learn forwards in the future. We're also doing a couple of prognostic studies trying to determine which patients are, um, are more likely to benefit from exercise. And another study that we're hoping to come on stream soon is a look, a, a look at, a, a more sophisticated look at the role of ultrasound-guided injections versus blind injections for the more reactive stage of rotator cuff tendinopathy. And we've got some novel ways of trying to determine the effect of injections and the best way to deliver injections in this particular patient group. Uh, uh, okay, thanks, Jeremy. That's a, a great insight into your work and um, rotator cuff tendinopathy, and there will be a great. There's some great lessons in there for all clinicians, I think. Um, enjoy the Olympics. Thank you very much, Jill. Thank you very much for okay. the opportunity to participate in this podcast. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.